Welcome back to the Marketing Moment with DV Dynamo. That is our new name. We debuted it in last week's episode or maybe the week before that now. These days blur together, but we are excited to bring you another episode this week. We are going to be talking about how to be the brand that you would like to work with. And perhaps that's not necessarily a theme that would seem like the next step that we were going to talk about. We talk a lot about industry trends most of the time, but this is one we're really excited to dive into with you guys today. Also, because it gives us a chance to tell you a little bit about why we changed our own name, DB Dynamo, as a reflection of us having gone through an exercise that we hope to take you through today. But if you're a first time listener to the marketing moment, we, as I mentioned, are the team DB Dynamo. And we tell people that unofficially, our slogan is that if your customers learn it, eat it, or wear it, we help you sell it. And we see ourselves as the place where art and commerce shake hands and we live and breathe e-commerce as, as a, an extension of that. So every week we talk about e-commerce trends. And as I mentioned, we're going to get into one that's slightly adjacent to what we would normally speak about. But I'm also joined with my co-hosts and we got the whole gang here today. Nicole Williams, say hello dubbies to the fans and the friends. Hi guys. And hello. Julia Reynolds on the, if you're watching on YouTube, we've got a nice distinct black brick background. Hi guys. <laughs> Three times fast black brick background. That's that's a hard one. But <laughs> so I'm going to kick things off by telling you that actually Nicole is going to take the keys here and give you our weekly digital dash, which as you know, is just a quick look at some of the top headlines in our industry and things to look out for. So Nicole, what's going on? Okay, yeah. So our first headline of today is what strategies will make US TV viewers pay more attention to ads. So this article comes from eMarketer. Um, they have a bunch of stats thrown in here, but we have this information basically from June of 2021. Um, and the following components are basically not incentives, but types of media that would make viewers feel incentivized to actually sit through or watch ads. Um, the first two were actually tied at 36%. Um, viewers are most likely to either one, want to watch ads to earn rewards for watching or to only experience one single ad per break. From that list in subsequent order, we have the shorter ad length, shorter ad breaks, um, ad or ad categories that they can choose themselves, um, similar to what you might see on Hulu, where you can select right. a path between one to two, maybe three different um, types of advertising commercials. Um, and then a countdown clock targeted to your product searches, targeted to the actual shows that they're watching, which would make sense, um, and countdown for the number of ads. So you can actually see a little indicator of how much time you might have left for the also commercial break. Hulu also does that. Yeah. Uh, Hulu, yeah, they do do that. Um, then if you can actually pause a show and then an ad can display during that time instead of the commercial break just coming in in incrementals or incrementally. Um, and then the last one, having an actual link to a product directly from the ad itself. Those are pretty interesting. So basically the tide is kind of turning. People really don't mind commercials that much based on it sounds, it sounds like a, you know, a couple of things I'm taking from this. The, funny enough, the one thing that I think is perhaps the most difficult to enact is the one that they seem to like the most, and that's earning rewards for watching. And I'm sure there's a, a way to do it and somebody's going to try. But ideally, you know, the others, I think, all have space for feasibility. And, and a lot of them, as we mentioned around Hulu, we talked about a couple of weeks ago making you know, Amazon Prime TV being even more shoppable with the products being integrated in a way that they used to do it just with um, with IMDb where they would show the actors who are on the screen and stuff like that. So this takes that a step further, making them shoppable, which they're doing as well. But this really comes down to personalization as well, because you can see that they want 
to be driven to information specifically about the shows that they're watching, as well as they want to be targeted to their own product searches. So, and they want to have control or at least the perception of control over how long they've got to deal with it. <laughs> so the countdown clock, I think makes a lot of sense, shorter ad breaks or the ads being shown when they're paused, which I think is actually a really smart opportunity because that screen sits static a lot of times. And I have a newborn in the house now, so I know how often we see that static pause screen while we're feeding the baby and stuff. So there's, yeah, people essentially don't care um, they know that ads are going to be a part of their experience. What they want is a little bit more control over what they're seeing and they want it personalized when, when it's happening. So I think, now let's see the, those who can deliver on it. Some, as we'd mentioned, Hulu have done a lot of these things for, for a long time and they were trailblazers to an extent, but Hulu is also not the main streaming service that people are tuning into these days. So it'll be interesting to see if advertisers can find ways to monetize experiences like this. Cause if not, they don't care. <laughs> the, the advertisers have to be able to make money off of it to justify it. So interesting to see what the customers are thinking though. For sure. I think linked to a product might be kind of the future, but we'll see. We'll see what happens yeah. when we get there. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to our next headline is social media, the new storefront. So this one is actually an opinion piece from Adweek, uh, which says as a pandemic has drastically shifted e-commerce integration, we're seeing e-commerce, social media and advertising intersect in the same space. This is apparent as the number of US buyers purchasing through social media accelerated 25.2% to 80.1 million in 2020 and will grow another 12.9% to 90.4 million in 2021. Um, as, for specific, or as for specific platforms, Facebook is a given. He says Facebook's user penetration is also strong, leading to converting more engagement into purchases. 18.3% of users reported buying something on the platform in a June 2020 BizRate Insights survey which is pretty awesome. I actually read an article about this as well a few weeks ago. Um, basically, the e-commerce platforms might be seeing their way out, like Shopify, um, Marketo, things of that nature. They might be losing their steam as social platforms like Facebook or Instagram have their more e-commerce storefronts, right? Um, we also mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast about the integration of AR into e-commerce. So the same article also mentioned Snapchat as being one of the best places for augmented reality integrations. Um, one of the basically correspondents within the article had mentioned 47 point or sorry, 47% of consumers say they would pay extra for a product if they could customize or personalize it using immersive technologies. Also, Instagram and TikTok are huge players in the online shopping game. Again, with Instagram rolling out the new yet controversial shop tab um, and other e-commerce features. So TikTok has a reputation for selling out items that go viral, which is obviously something that marketers can try to leverage, but ultimately have no control over. Uh, although TikTok is making big strides in advertising capabilities and influencer features, it is basically promoting shopability on the app. Like that's kind of the new push. So what are you guys' thoughts? Yeah, but I'll give Julia a first dig on this one if she's got some some insights. I know she does. Yeah, I mean, we saw it a couple months ago when Instagram redid their uh, home screen and it was like a huge thing. Um, big controversy because people did not want the shop feature that used to be like a little icon in the top corner by your messages to now be a main tab. It was kind of like a, I don't know, sort of acting like Instagram was a sellout. Like they, you know, they sold out to the, to the big companies and it's just a shopping app and it's not for the people anymore. Um, but obviously that's a, a big change Instagram was willing to make and clearly they want to go in that shopping direction. And we've seen that followed up with um, things that they're, their executive team has been saying and other features that they've been implementing. And I think TikTok is doing the same um, in terms of 
advertising and, and getting uh, companies the ability to tie their products more easy, easily and seamlessly into the app. So, yeah. And, and I, I disagree a little bit that social media is the new storefront because I don't, I think it's new to somebody who's not been paying attention, but the reality is commerce has been happening through these channels for a really long time. Yes. Instagram is making it a little bit easier now to, to do basically manage the shopping within its own platform, which is something Facebook led the charge on prior to them. And they're under the same umbrella. So they're cousins basically, but I, I don't think it's a new storefront, but I do think it's just an acknowledgement that every touch point matters. If you're going to have a presence and you're trying to sell products to consumers, you want to give them as many like smooth types of buttery <laughs> transaction opportunities as there are. And if they can buy a product directly in a social platform without ever leaving and having to go to your website, then that kind of is a no brainer, but you have to make sure that the user experience is up to, up to Chuck, I think, as they say, or uh, is that, is that the thing that people say up to Chuck? Maybe I made that up. Well, we'll skip that for and I'll, until I figure out what it means. We'll come back to it. But, <laughs> uh, but there's yeah, the, the commerce in these platforms is not new. Nicole, you had made a, a comment a little bit before about maybe pushing some of the Shopify's out. I'm mean, gonna disagree only because it's good for our ratings. I think uh, to to disagree every once in a while. But these you know these actual shopping based platforms for for websites are not going anywhere. I think Shopify's getting their their lunch taken for for different reasons, not through social media, but because there's other platforms for shopping commerce that are emerging, and a popular one is is Big Commerce, and and there are certainly others, you know, options available through Salesforce that are popular. And Shopify has probably the best solutions where for people who maybe are just trying to do it quickly with a lot of the plugins and capabilities that they need but it also has the tendency to bog down the functionality of a site because so many things are baked into the code of Shopify. And I think that's going to be a limiting factor to them um, in the near term. It doesn't mean Shopify's value proposition is different. It just means others offer you know unique parts of the shopping experience that Shopify can't customize as easily, but that's a completely different conversation, but social commerce does not surprise me. And I think the brands who, want to take it seriously already have and if they haven't they're they're late to the game but it's you know it's better late than never all right so that is the marketing moment well I, I should say the digital dash from the marketing moment and of course what you're here for is your entree or so we think how to be the brand that you would like to work work with this is our main course today in the segment that we really want to focus on so Nicole you uh you had some thoughts on this I want to have you set it up a little bit and then give us you know, a chance not only to talk about ourselves, but I think it's timely to do that for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, as a listener, it gives you a little bit of insight into the way that we think as a, as a group, but also how we're applying it to ourselves. And then also as a first person exercise in looking at us as a research case of how we arrived at turning the mirror onto ourselves and fine tuning our own focus and, and understanding how you can do that for yourself. So Nicole, I'll let you take the keys and then we'll, we'll have ourselves a nice little dialogue. Yeah, for sure. So I would say definitely focusing on your brand story is a foundation. Um, you pretty much have to ask yourself or establish three pieces. One being the why, highlighting your story's conflict, kind of what problem are you trying to solve with the brand that you're creating? Um, two being the status quo and resolution. It's the way things are or the initial nature of your situation usually is how we come to even inventing or innovating a product or a service. So establishing what the status quo was and then describing how your product or service is a resolution 
really describes how the protagonist being you or your brand solves a problem or gives your audience emotional payoff, which is great. Um, the third component usually is the backstory of the founder. People love a good success story. They want to understand, or they want to understand going back to the why, what problem are you trying to solve? Kind of why did the founder come to this conclusion? What were they personally undertaking to come to this point of like their aha moment? Um, so definitely these are kind of the three components that we would want to focus on when creating a brand story or trying to relay it to a new customer um, or establishing that foundation. Other pieces would include investing in content marketing. So you definitely want to follow all of your prospects and existing customers through the funnel when you are telling your story. Um, also prioritizing customer experience is something that we want to talk about during today's podcast because it is essential to ensure that all interactions with your customers that you have are positive. And obviously that kind of builds a piece of your brand, right? Like you want to know that you are establishing something that provides a customer with value and they feel that value whenever they interact with your business. Ultimately, it's all about creating an emotional connection um, as well as an ethical connection, really. David, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great basis. And, and again, with a, you know, a 30 minute podcast episode, we're, we're never going to go to the depth of everything, you know, all the different parameters, if you will. But in this case, I think that's a pretty succinct summary. Your, your why, ultimately, like your story's conflict, just to restate them and the problem you're solving for the status quo and the resolution. It's sort of like, you know, how, how are we as a brand, uh, or in our case, an agency going to break through the status quo and resolve a problem or, or create an opportunity. And then the story of the founder is the one that doesn't necessarily connect with each of those as logically, but you do see evidence of how powerful that can be when it's done very well. Gary Vaynerchuk, who is, you know, is not everyone's favorite cup of tea, depending on how you choose to look at him, but he is his brand. He is the founder story is exactly why VaynerMedia was able to, to latch on very quickly because of the founder story. Um, there's a brand that we've reached out to in, in, in an effort to work with them called Hush Blankets out of California. Uh, I'm sorry, out of Canada. And they have a, a great founder story. It's, it's two guys, young guys in their, uh, their early 30s, I believe, who, who found you know, an opportunity in the sleep space that no one else was touching. And they did like a Kickstarter that, uh, that really caught on quickly. And a lot of people were energized by their enthusiasm for the space. And, and so now I'll turn the mirror, you know, on ourselves a little bit and, and kind of talk about how we became DB Dynamo, because I think this is an exercise that perhaps would have been useful to have in front of me prior to, to this whole exercise, but in as many steps, we ended up going through it anyway, but the why for us, and again, highlighting what our conflict was or the problem that we were trying to solve for with the agency that we were creating was twofold. And, and this is a, you know, a great moment of transparency, but the, the first part ultimately has to be about the customer that you are trying to serve. If you have an offering for a, for a solution that, to a problem they don't have, then all you've really done is change the wallpaper to make yourself feel good. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's not really going to serve you well. But in this case, when we really saw an opportunity with e-commerce, it's a specialty of ours that kind of emerged out of our social and digital origins, so to speak. We were always a social and digital media buying agency, but as time went on, we understood that the brands we were having the most success with and, and that we found the most enjoyment with were brands that were selling products directly to consumers through websites because we, we have a real knack for understanding not just that ads drive people to, to sites to take actions, but we understand how that website is supposed to work and how the creative is supposed to connect to the ads and how the user experience on that site works and then connects to a CRM tool for loyalty components. All those things 
where we really understood e-com was critical to who we were. And then sure enough, COVID-19 happens and it's the gasoline on the fire to just double down on that. And as we've mentioned on previous episodes, there's statistics and data that show that e-commerce's growth was expedited, expedited by five years ahead of schedule because of what happened in COVID-19. So for us, or, or rather me personally, I felt like the writing was on the wall that we, like a lot of other agencies, took our lumps during COVID for obvious reasons. And when we had a big client of ours was a movie theater. Another was a chain of med spas, places that people could physically not go to. So we, you know, we, we took our lumps in, in losing some clients like that during COVID and, and helped them get back. But we really saw this as an opportunity to move further into a discipline that a lot of people were trying to move into all at once that we were already experts in. So our why in this regard was understanding what was our story's conflict. For our customers, it was an urgency to get products online and not just have them online, but to have really unique, personalized experiences for customers that makes them want to shop online. And, and that was a problem that they're, they're trying to solve for. And frankly, it was a problem we were trying to solve for too. At one point, and this you know, happens to a lot of businesses, um, I think it's better to do it in the opposite direction of what we did. It's always better in my dangerous focus group of one estimation to start with a thing that you are an expert at. And perhaps we tried to say yes to too many things at the beginning of our evolution. And at some point we became known for a lot of different things that weren't necessarily connected into one unifying theme. And so the idea was to also to make our lives easier when it comes to reaching out to, to new prospects. We want to know exactly who we're going for. That's why we emphasize the brain and the body. If your customers learn it, eat it, or wear it, we help you sell it. Now it's abundantly clear who fits into those, those types of opportunities for us and the types of brands that don't uh, as well. And so having that focus was, was really important for us. And our why was not only valuable to us internally, but as I'd mentioned, first and foremost, it was valuable to a customer subset that needed e-commerce to work. And that was a skill set that we had. And now we're putting that at the forefront instead of somewhere in the background. So that was our why. The second one is the status quo in the resolution, right? It's the way things are, the way things are, the natural nature, the initial nature of our situation. And as I acknowledged, I think we were moving down a path where we were saying yes to a number of industries that we did know how to serve, but it made it difficult for, for the right types of clients to know what we were truly experts in. So if we were kind of jacks of, of many different trades, but it was preventing us from getting real depth into some of the verticals that we knew we were strongest in, in this case, e-commerce. So in terms of you know, us being the protagonist in this individual scenario, which for, for us is our individual scenario, um, is giving our audience an emotional payoff for, through this resolution. So for us, it was not just about solving for e-commerce because as much as I wanna think that we're the best at what we do, I'm not naive. There are a lot of great agencies out there who do e-commerce really well. So we're not alone in that regard. But, and I'm actually now going to read you, a, you know, a little bit of copy that was, or that not was, but that is on our website, because I think it speaks very closely to the, the, the why, uh, beyond just, you know, like the functional one, but more of the emotional payoff. Uh, because I think that a lot of e-commerce agencies, especially in this era of data and attribution and clicks and modeling and stuff, there's this tendency for, for brands to overfocus on the things that they can measure. And it causes them to ignore some of the things that are a little more intrinsic. And, and I hate saying best practices because that's so overstated, but advertising has always been an industry about your ability to compel people 
to put an idea in their head that's not currently in their head to make them say, wow, or to pay attention. And I think that's really been missing from e-commerce where instead everyone's saying, well, the blue picture versus the red picture and, oh, the click-through rate is 0.2 higher than, you know, whatever misses the like the forest for the trees. There's just so many more insights. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, customers are never shopping and saying, oh, I got this because it was optimized for purchase. Or I really liked the fact that the the headline on this banner was different than the one on the other one that I saw before. Like, it's just not how it works. Um, so this is a little bit more of our emotional attachment from directly from our website. And here's what I wrote. We're introducing a born digital dynamo with best in class solutions from the industry's top minds in creative technology, data, media, and measurement for e-commerce. This is where we get to our emotional part of it. We know that good e-commerce needs tracking and attribution, but great e-commerce dynamos transcend data with thumb stopping creative, a genius media plan with flawless execution and the instincts to build a rabid following. It pours gasoline on sales and lights a match. And this is our other unofficial tagline. Great e-commerce is where art and commerce shake hands. And I'll pause real quickly on that because I think that distinction was really important for us. In our experience, the agency world has kind of moved, and I'm overgeneralizing, but you see a lot of creative agencies who are good at the creative side of things. And you see a lot of agencies who have all the tools and bells and whistles and technology stacks and tracking and attribution and all that stuff. There are very few focusing on e-commerce who can do both. And so that's also where I think the true brands that make a mark on e-commerce are actually making a, a mark is by having a real story to tell and having the, all of the technological side of things in place as well. So where art and commerce shake hands in our estimation, and this is back on the website, one cannot exist without the other. If you ask us, that's what's missing from most direct to consumer plans. Sure. An agency should track clicks and pixel data, but spreadsheets and pivot tables are hollow. If a brand doesn't have something to say in the first place. Customers don't need more widgets. They need something to believe in, something to rally behind. Spoiler, running Facebook ads doesn't manifest a rallying cry. Great ideas set ablaze by time-tested know-how and a healthy relationship with data do. That's what makes us different. We help good e-commerce brands become great ones by identifying what matters and knowing that data is a tool, but it's not the tool chest. Great e-commerce is DB Dynamo. So patting ourselves on the back a little bit. Granted, it's copy on our own website, so we're just reciting what's already there. But but that was, for me, the, the really important part, the emotional payoff, was to have someone understand, okay, I, I really love the creative side of advertising. If, if I'm a brand looking for an agency to work with, yeah, of course I want the technological side of things. I want the tracking and the data and attribution and the CRM integrations and all that stuff. But I want somebody who gets advertising too and frankly knows how to have fun with it. Pixels and data and attribution are not fun. Targeting ROAS metrics you know, in a vacuum and Facebook ad costs went up one day and you have no control over that, right? If we really wanted the ability to look at the bigger picture and there was an emotional payoff for that internally and externally. And then number three, the backstory of the founder, which here's what comes from being transparent and honest. There was a point in my life where I didn't mind being the, the center of attention but in my, my older years now, <laughs> or, or as I've gotten older, that's been hard. And putting the light on, on myself as a founder is not something that's been as obvious. But I do understand in situations where I've connected to other brands where the founder story really is compelling, I can see the value in it. You think a lot of somebody like Whitney Wolf, who is synonymous with Bumble, right, as the, as the first female billionaire um, under the age of, I think, 40 or maybe under the age of 30 or something like that. She's synonymous with the Bumble story. 
Um, and it's funny that a lot of women seem to fall into this, but you think of um, the founder of Spanx, um, and I'm, I'm forgetting her name right now, um, Elizabeth. Man. I thought it was Sarah something. Sarah, yes. Um, dad invented Spanx, by the way, so he does not like, <laughs> he swears he invented in the 70s, and she stole did? the idea. My dad swears oh, he invented dad. Spanx. Oh, man. Yeah. All right, we're going to have to get Mr. Williams on the on the podcast next time. Uh, Sarah Blakely, sorry, was was the one who- uh, Yeah, I know yeah. Gotcha. So Sarah Blakely, you know, her founder story is incredibly powerful for Spanx. And I actually listened to a podcast uh, interview with her where she, nobody wanted to stock it in the right place in the stores that she was able to get distribution in. So this woman actually went into the store and acted as a salesperson for her own product. People at Nordstrom didn't even have any idea that she was not an employee at Nordstrom. And she went and chased down one of the buyers for another store and like cornered her into like a, a women's restroom. And she was like, please just like, try it, just try it. And the woman tried it and ordered, you know, enough for, I, I want to say like 600 stores in, in their, um, I forget which brand it was, maybe it was Nordstrom at that point. And, and the story, you know, kind of took off from there because once people discovered Spanx at the right place, not, um, not in some, you know, the wrong shelf. She helped put it on the right shelf and, and convinced the right people to buy it. And Spanx became who they became because of Sarah Blakely's earnestness in that regard. So those are just two anecdotes that, you know, come off the top of my mind, but founder stories are important, right? Brands that are not necessarily known and for as great as we, as I think that we are, DB Dynamo is not a known name to the general public. And that's something that we're working on. But in the absence of a brand story that resonates, people do resonate. We, we ultimately buy from people. We don't buy from, from brands or entities. Um, maybe at the very top you know, of, the, of the heap we do, right? Like your, your Apples and your Nikes and things like that. We're, buying, we're not buying from Phil Knight or, or Steve Jobs specifically, um, but their, their founder stories are imperative as well. But it really is those people connections at most other levels that gets people to buy in. And, and that's an important component that, you know, now that I'm seeing it written here, I recognize my, my founder story. Uh, I don't know how romantic it is, but, you know, perhaps it's an opportunity for us to, uh, to double down on. But and then to the other end of that, just to tie this in a bow, you can see Nicole talked about the importance of content marketing. Exhibit A, what you are listening to is content marketing. It is our hope to show our thought leadership in the category that we're proclaiming to be experts in. And so you see us each week taking on different topics that are relevant to e-commerce brands, sometimes generically, sometimes in specific verticals, but also the customer experience. When someone reaches out to us, you know, through, through email, for example, or on a social media post, we're interacting with them. Why? Because we can't tell you that we're attentive and customer oriented and then not deliver on it to the people who want to talk to us. So that's absolutely critical to the delivering on the values that you proclaim to have in the first place. And, and our clients need to see that too, is us being quick to respond, right? We have an internal you know, policy where anytime there's an email coming in, we're responding within 24 hours because our customers have to have an expectation that we are going to deliver that level of service and, and we have to follow through on it. And that's just one small example, right? But being a good partner comes down to understanding your customer's needs. And in the space of e-commerce, things move very fast faster than I would say in retail, because uh, retail requires physically moving things into a store. Whereas on e-commerce, all you got to do is sometimes drag and drop things on and they're live. So we have to move quickly in that regard. And kudos actually to, to Julia and Nicole, who helped our client Averaglow get on Beauty Hall live on Amazon the other night, um, pretty quickly in a matter of a week or so. 
and and they got they drove uh, several hundred thousand dollars in revenue on on a single night because because we moved quickly and and there's a payoff in a very literal sense for our client, but also now in the 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 goodness of their their good graces, if you will, that they knew we saw an opportunity and we didn't stop until we helped them push it forward. So a little bit of you know patting ourselves on the back for it, but these are things that we we have to stand for and then and then live them out when when it really counts with our clients. So that flip that on yourself, right? I mean, use, as I mentioned, we were using ourselves as a, as a use case, but even established brands should go through this, this exercise at least once a year and making sure that their why, for example, is still the same as it was a year ago. Um, and if it is, that's fantastic. And if it's not, that's also fantastic because you bothered to even find out if it was still the same. Listen to where your customers are directing you or your clients in our case. Listen to where the industry is going, where your competitor go, competitors are going. Your why may actually change. Uh, for us, it certainly did. And the sooner you can listen to that call and act confidently based on knowing who you are, the better position your brand is going to be in to succeed, uh, not just you know in the short term, but in the long term as well. So I am off my soapbox. That was the core of our segment, the proverbial entree. Sometimes I think everyone's favorite part of this whole uh, episode is when we finish it off with our marketing nozzle and our marketing malfunction. So I'm going to hand the keys back over to Julia and Nicole to take you guys home on, on the two that we have for this week. Yeah. So starting off with our marketing malfunction, so we can end on a positive note with our nozzle. Uh, Tiffany, as in Tiffany of Tiffany & Co., had a little backlash Um they launched their Not Your Mother's Tiffany campaign, which kind of ruffled some feathers with classic Tiffany loyal customers um, who felt that they'd been alienated. So the, the campaign itself featured a lot of young millennials and some different styles of jewelry that some older Tiffany's customers were not fans of. What do you guys think? Any, any thoughts? I actually saw this headline. It was on Instagram a few times. Well, that was funny because in middle school, the Tiffany's resurgence or boom for millennials. So for me, this is like 2002, 2003. Everyone had like those sterling silver, like return of Tiffany's, like dog tags and stuff. I had every piece. I had the earrings. I had two different necklaces, like the choker, like the dog tag chain. Um, I had the bracelets. I had all of it. I think it's funny because I feel like if anything, like millennials, they're not like, moms to Gen Zers. It's more like Gen X or maybe boomers. Um, so it's an odd thing of who actually like got upset about it or who the mother in this situation is. In general, I do think it is a fail from Tiffany because they are kind of like, again, kind of going back on like what their base is. I think that there could have been a better way to approach this campaign without alienating these people. Um, that's kind of where I stand on it. Like I am very familiar with the brand, but I feel like the products that they're trying to actually promote, they didn't have to go about it that way. Like, yeah. if anything, I was maybe not your grandmother's Tiffany. Like, I don't know. Like, who who were they actually trying to talk to? Because like millennials are the ones that brought it back. So I don't know. Yeah, I I agree, but I also you're right. Like, this is just really weak execution because I and you know what they're trying to say, right? They're trying to say that Tiffany's exactly yeah. Tiffany's is edgy Tiffany's is for the you know for a younger generation too like it's you know it's accessible what they did instead was say hey core customer this isn't for you anymore it's for your daughters <laughs> like the yeah. people who have sustained and kept this brand alive like so we don't need you anymore we need your daughters um you know and that's they're I agree it's just really missed the mark and if anything there was an opportunity for them to show 
multiple generations as mm -hmm. Tiffany's being like a tradition type of brand, which I think that it is. I agree. And yeah. that was to me an opportunity sitting very plainly in front of them. My, right, you don't create a campaign like this if you're not concerned about your customers aging out. So what mm -hmm. do you do? You talk about the fact that this brand has been around for generations and find a way to connect those. Uh, instead, they basically were like, well, your mom's dead and <laughs> we're, we're trying to like, <laughs> or not so much, right? but they're, they're trying to kill her off, right? Like from, at least from yeah. the brand story, they're, they're removing her. And that's, yeah. that's the exact wrong way to go about it, especially for a brand, uh, you know, with a heritage like they do. So I, I agree, major malfunction. Um, that is well said, David, well said. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Sometimes I get it right. Yeah. <laughs> so for our mazel, this was a Cheetos Bad Bunny collab, which as a Miami-based agency, I feel like we are obligated to talk about anything Bad Bunny does. <laughs> I think so, you're right. Yeah. On July 22nd, Cheetos fans, which is an interesting demographic, could visit <laughs> the Cheetle ID, which Cheetle, in case you aren't aware, is the dust that gets on your fingers when you eat Cheetos. I, guess I did that's not their, know that. Their own word. Um, to score early access to the Cheetos Bad Bunny collection by Adidas. But there was a catch. You had to eat Cheetos and use the cheddar dust on their fingertips, sorry, to try and unlock the exclusive fashion collection. So I'm not really sure how, I assume it's more like a lottery thing. I have no idea. I guess like touch ID if you're, I, I don't really understand how that was implemented, but I thought it was a cool kind of marketing tactic. Um, and so, yeah, the promotion was only available to the first hundred fans who passed the inspection and the official collection launches uh, were launched August 6th. I think that's pretty cool, right? Like you're, you're talking about something that's gotten press for all of a hundred people who are going to get early access. Um, and again, does the technology work? I don't know, but we're talking about it and, and it's <laughs> a different way. Let's talk about this from, from a real basic level, right? Like the, the clothing type of thing that they're doing with bad bunny is evocative of what's happening in the sneaker industry, the exclusive collections and the collaborations and things like that which I think has been played out a little bit. And maybe that's kind of what Cheetos responded to was finding a unique, different way in where they really showed the the true colors of their brand, in this case, uh, orange, <laughs> because that's uh, the Cheeto that would be on their fingertips as they're you know trying to get the the scanner to work for them. So I, I think this is cool. I think it gives people a reason to go, you know, to check it out and to experience it and to remind themselves of a very visceral moment when you're eating Cheetos. You're right. No one thinks... Maybe you think about the crunch as you're eating a Cheeto. I, I can't tell you the last time I had one, but it does take you into that moment where you're experiencing a brand and you're like, oh yeah, I did get all that orange dust on my fingertips as I was eating it. That's unavoidable. So it, it puts a very visceral brand moment in your mind while you're trying to get something from a pretty cool collaboration with one of the biggest artists on the planet right now. So I think that's uh, that's really smart and savvy and, and we're talking about it. Yeah, I think it sounds cool. Also, everything Bad Bunny does sells out. So yeah, yeah, you're not even kidding. And and Travis Scott with his Nike uh, collaboration, which conversation for another day. He's got a new pair coming out in uh, August that I'm I'm hoping to get my hands on. Nice. And I don't even like Travis Scott. <laughs> All right. Great. So that's well, that's it. That's that's what we got. We'll wrap this in a bow. Thank you again for listening to the marketing mazel, uh, and the marketing malfunction. But this is the marketing moment with DB Dynamo. On behalf of Julia and Nicole, we were thrilled to be here. And if you enjoyed our episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you have a friend or peer who you think would be interested in, in listening as well, 
We would love to have you share it with them. We will be back next week and we look forward to talking to you again. Take care.